in a hierarchical culture, when the manager says, I don't know, that comes across as losing credibility. We started this conversation by you mentioning networking. And it, it's not just, you know, numbers of people in your diary or, or whatever. It's understanding that these different perspectives all contribute to the collaborative understanding we have. You mentioned Abraham. Abraham is a prophet to you, is a prophet to us. We have the Ten Commandments, you have the Ten Commandments. We have lots of tribal customs about when children are born, when the male child is born, we have circumcision, you have circumcision. When people die, we bury the dead within 24 hours. When they get married, there are certain customs that seem to be very, very similar. And through you, Andy, Sabir, isn't it just crazy that the Jew and the Arab are closer than any other religions? And yet here we are discussing this. Welcome to the Connected Leadership Podcast, hosted by Andy Lapata, the show where Andy and his guests explore the many ways in which relationships impact business decisions, make leaders' jobs easier, and help you to progress your career. Hello and welcome to the Connected Leadership Podcast. I'm Andy Lapata. Thank you very much for joining me. This is a very different podcast to usual this week, and it's quite a difficult one to broadcast. The idea came to me in the middle of last week. So I'm assuming you're listening on broadcast day, which is Monday, the 23rd of October, 2023. I'm recording this on Friday, the 20th of October, my birthday, just as an aside. Um, And the idea came on Wednesday. Uh, But I've been battling over the last few days, the last couple of weeks, with the events that have been going on in the Middle East, and particularly what I'm seeing in the way that people are responding to it and the dialogue uh, that surrounds it. It's a very sensitive topic. I had to think more than once about whether to go ahead with this, and I had conversations with both my guests about how they felt about it. We don't want to discuss the politics of the situation. It's a very difficult and complex situation with very fired up, highly emotional opinions on both sides, very understandably, Uh, and I, for one, don't feel qualified to discuss those in this type of forum. I have my opinions, um, but I don't feel qualified as a podcast broadcaster to talk about them here. I'm not an expert in that sense. And, and I think both of my guests would would put their hands up in the same way. We all have opinions on it, um, but it's not something we're comfortable debating and discussing. But I'm looking at it from a different angle. I, I spend a lot of time with my guests on this podcast talking about how we interact and engage with each other talking about how we resolve interpersonal conflict, the power of listening to other people, the, the importance of, uh, of engaging in conversations, seeking to learn from other people rather than always prove yourself to be the, the, the right person in the room. And, and also we, we've had episodes, really strong ones, including on this very topic, on the importance of challenging your preconceptions. I don't think the general dialogue around this topic reflects that. When I look at Twitter, I see Jewish friends of mine raging against anyone who says anything against Israel, but but not balancing that um, in any way. I see Muslim friends and I see left-wing friends raging against anything Israel does, but not balancing that in any way. And everyone seems to want to take a side. And I think that when we take a side in any conflict, 
we, ne- we we reduce the chances, if not negate the chances of any resolution to that conflict. It's only by stopping taking sides, listening to both sides of the argument and trying to find a middle ground, trying to find an, a, a way forward um, that, that we can actually move somewhere, seeking to understand. And, and, and of course, there's many people who will say, well, you can't negotiate with terrorists and you can't negotiate with these people. That's not what I'm suggesting. I'm talking about everyday conversation between people. Uh, I woke up this morning, this is Friday, and I read the headline that the, I think, Iranian comedian, Omid Jalili, has had to cancel uh, a comedy co- uh, gig in, in the West of England because of death threats. And it's because of a tweet that he sent about what's going on that really was quite benign. It really was when I read it. And that's not going to move us forward. So that's the goal for today. I hope that it's helpful to people. I know that I'll have some people who are listening to this who are are listening out of interest and, and maybe slightly objective observers to this. I mean, I think we've all got thoughts and feelings about what's going on, but for some some could be more objective than others. But I also know I'll have people listening who may have family and friends who uh, who, who are right in the middle of everything and, and who are very much emotionally tied into what's happening. And, and I hope that we can cover this in, with a sensitivity and an understanding um, to, to add something to the conversation and not pour fu- uh, fuel on the flames. So that's my rather long introduction to this, and I hope that I've set the tone for what I want to achieve from this conversation. So the two people I mentioned that I, I'd spoken to my guests, what I, I wanted to do, I didn't ask experts on the conflict. That wasn't my goal. But I, I wanted to talk to two people who have a stake in, in what's happening, who who have friends, family, people who are involved, but, but who, who are... Uh, remote from the center of it. Um, so I've asked Will Kintish, who is a long-term friend of mine. I've known Will for probably 20, over 20 years. Um, we're both in, in, we've both been in the same field. Will is a very highly regarded networking skills expert and, and has been for probably more than a quarter of a century. Uh, He's Manchester, born and raised, uh, Jewish, uh, now living just outside North London. And by the most amazing coincidence, he's living, he bought his home from my second cousin, um, we found out, which was quite a bizarre coincidence. Um, But Will, you know, has has been to the West Bank and Gaza, I believe. He's he's been to Israel many times um, and, and can talk from the perspective of a Jewish man in London. Uh, or, or in England, and Sabir Jarwaid, um, who's in Leeds. Uh, she is a very impressive woman, um, as well as a very impressive man. Um, uh, but Sabir is a European silver medalist kickboxer, so Will will be glad that, A, we're doing this remotely, and B, uh, it's all going to be friendly. Um, and she's now a leadership uh, coach and speaker. Um, Sabir was the first hijab-wearing female British Muslim black belt kickboxer to have represented England at European level. And she's feels very strongly about her faith. Um, but, you know, I, I, I think from our conversations we've had together, she, she brings the same thoughts as I do to this topic, I hope so, in terms of we need to, to connect as individuals and connect as human beings across those, those boundaries of faith. So Will and Sabir, thank you so much for joining me on what isn't 
perhaps the most lighthearted or easiest uh, podcast recording I, I've ever had, but uh, hopefully one that, that can enrich us and enrich the people that listen. So, so thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Andy. Thanks, Andy. A good summary so, as you're starting. Thank you. Thank you. So I, I want to ask both of you. I want to start with you, Will. I think the most important thing to ask to begin with is how you are. You know, I've said in both cases that you have ties to the region in the conflict. So I don't want to just stand divorced from your personal experience and, and look back objectively. Um, how are you and how have the events in the last fortnight affected you? Well, here we are, Andy, in North London, and it's so easy to be 5,000 miles west of what's going on. But at the end of the day, you know, you wake up in the morning and you put the news on before you go to bed at night. You think, what's happened next? And I can't help it. Now, I'm not speaking for Sabia, but I'm sure she feels the same. It's like having the black cloud, you know, what's happening next? How many more people are going to die? What's happening with my niece? The, heart, the interesting thing about this is the day before the war broke out, my niece had a baby. So what sort of a world oh. is that, bringing a baby into this world? So you say, how do I feel? I'm nervous. I'm nervous for all innocent people, I think is my summary. And, and yeah, I, I can completely understand that. And, you know, what should be a time of celebration and congratulations is a time of great pain and fear. And that must be so difficult. Absolutely. Within hours of her being born or within a day, unfortunately, rockets came over to Jerusalem and they had to go and hide in the cellars. Yeah. So what a way to start a life. What a way. We can only hope it gets uh, brighter. Absolutely. Sabia, how are you? This podcast was very difficult for me to come to. I'm quite an empathetic person and I've had quite a few speaking engagements in the last week and a half. And on a personal note, as a mother, as a person who stands for humanity, and as Will said, it doesn't matter what background you're from, the loss of innocent civilians, but to have friends, I don't have direct family, but I have friends who've had generations of family members who've passed away to see what's happening. And although we're not physically there, we have devices, we have mobile phones, we're more connected than ever before. And to witness what's happening and the injustice and the sheer catastrophe of what's happening on a human level, away from all of the labels, has a very difficult emotional bearing on us. Mm. Um, so I am really struggling emotionally i'm asking myself what is my role in this world as leaders as speakers where we aim to inspire others to hope to stand on this foundation where we want to create a better future and in the midst of all this as will said there's a black cloud that we're waking up to we're going to sleep and yet we're thousands of miles away so it is in a in a very vulnerable space i am finding it very difficult to see what's happening you know, we had a long conversation on Wednesday uh, and you took your time before agreeing to do this. I hope you don't mind me saying, and I, I think it was the right thing. And I appreciate you doing that. But I, I think it's so easy to be blasé and think it doesn't affect people 5,000 miles away. And, you know, going back to the keyboard warriors, and, and I don't want to, that's probably a bit unfair because a lot of those people are venting the, the, the fears that you're talking about and the concerns you're talking about. I think there are two types of people that are tweeting on this. Those that are genuinely 
it highly emotional and highly scared uh, and that's their way of expressing themselves and those that just jump in on anything like this to those i think they need to hear how it's impacting real people you know I, i talk about social media there you've talked about having mobile technology and phone technology that's something that's relatively recent in this type of conflict and particularly in in that region you know, everyone's talking about the Yom Kippur War and the Six Day War. And of course, you didn't have this, and it was so much more distant. Is it a good thing that we have that connection to the people on the ground and the impact, or is it making it worse for people? I, I guess it's a mixed blessing, but how do you guys see it, Sabia? Personally, I think it's a good thing. The reason is because we're able to see what is happening on the ground and we're able to see the footage of people, though it's very traumatizing for us to see. And I think I, I say that in a very general sense, because the trauma on the ground is far greater. But to be able to see a range, a diverse perspective, I think it's really important because I am of the opinion that the media has a, a role mm-hmm. to play in creating division and being biased. So when we're seeing real life footage, um, coverage of what's going on on the ground, we then have a choice of being able to make a decision for ourselves. Yeah. It's not, it's, and so for me, although it's, I do think it's not filtered, it's unfiltered, and, but I do think it contributes to that freedom of expression so we can then form our own opinions. And I don't think that was the case in the past. And I think that is something that is happening now. And that there is a, also a, an impact of that on a humanitarian level, on a more emotional level, where we are having that connection. Because I know with myself, I'm having so many conversations with myself about, look at the privilege that I have. My daughter's waking up in a warm house, going to school in a nice, clean uniform, having food and the basic necessities of life food water electricity are not available there for other children why is my daughter better than anybody else and that's something I I genuinely am finding it very difficult to grapple with at this moment in time and Will how about for you are you using FaceTime for example and social media to be more connected to your family and your friends in Israel Uh, are you engaging a lot with the conversation on social media around this and how's that impacting you I'm not at all. I mean, I, the only social media I use a lot, as you know, Andy, because you helped introduce me to it, is LinkedIn. And unless I'm being naive, I haven't seen a lot of discussion on LinkedIn about uh, what's going on. I don't know whether yeah. you have, Sabia. There isn't a lot, and I'm, but I'm sure there's a lot on TikTok and X and, and all of it. But I have my own opinions and I don't want to share them because I think it actually fuels. We know what's going on. You talk about 50 years ago, 70 years ago, before the phones and instant images, both sides of any conflict, half of it would be fiction as opposed to fact. Now, there's no fiction. It's all there. The press, the reporters are there in the face watching what's going on. So in that respect, I think it is a good thing that they are all there. But personally, I don't get involved. A friend of mine, a non-Jewish friend of mine, wrote a heartfelt article about what's been going on. And I thought, what can I do with this? And you know what? I posted it, reposted it on LinkedIn. I said, I don't do politics and I don't do religion. 
on LinkedIn, but I can't help but share this with other people. And that's about as far as I've got, just reporting what other people have said as opposed to, I didn't even add my comment. I just said, read yeah. this and make your own decision. And do you feel the lack of engagement on the other platforms has made this easier for you to cope with? I'm not saying it's easy to cope with, but it, it could have been worse if you'd have sort of got sucked into that wormhole. Absolutely. You know, you put the radio on, you put the television on, and Sabir and I had a short chat earlier on, and I said to her, and I say it here, I don't care what religion the children are, as an example. The children are the children, and I cry I literally, tears come out, whether it's in Gaza, whether it's on the West Bank, or whether it's in Jerusalem or Tel Aviv, it doesn't matter. We're dealing with innocent people getting caught up in the most horrendous situation. And then more often than not, you know, Andy, I, I watch for a few minutes on the newscasts and I think, I don't want to watch it. I can't do anything. And it's just going to break my heart even more. So, you know, I, I'm... Not a masochist. I can't see. It's just going to break my heart. What's the point in watching? So that's my thinking about what's being thrown at me. I keep it to a minimum. You talk about the, the, seeing the children, and I think that takes me on to my next thing. Is I think we have to get away, as you say, from the politics and from the theory of it and, and, and humanise what's happening there. Will, I know you've been to Israel many times. You've been to, I think, the West Bank and Gaza as well. Sabir, I don't know if you've been to, to, to the region at all. You're, you're nodding, so, so you have. I'd love to hear from both of you about what life is like then normally. You know, what you see when you go around the West Bank or Gaza, what you see when you go around the cities in Israel. So the people who haven't been there and, and think of one as good and one as evil can understand everyday life in that area. So, Sabia, can you start by sharing your experiences? Sure. I visited Israel and Palestine, so I have been to West the West Bank, and I've also visited Jerusalem throughout of Tel Aviv. So I have been to different parts of Israel I went in as a British citizen and so I had a great deal of privilege as a Muslim woman with a hijab and I know Will doesn't talk about religion but faith for me is a huge part of my life so I'm quite happy to share that. It was clearly evident that the privilege I had because there were spaces that I was allowed in, there was a huge discrepancy between the way people were living in Israel and the way people were living in in the West Bank, the way intimidation was used against people who were perceived to be Muslim, I encountered that myself. And so for me, it was a really bizarre experience to, to actually witness with my own eyes, because well, I've grown up in the UK, born and raised here, and we've never seen that, that, that segregation between a group of people because of their ethnicity and their faith. So to see such a huge segregation and the West Bank is divided by a concrete wall that I think it's nine metres high, it was a really bizarre situation to witness. And at the same time, I felt really guilty as a woman that where I was able to have the privilege of having access to certain spaces. And there were people who lived just a few miles away from Jerusalem and Masjid al-Aqsa, which is a huge 
site for Muslims because it was the first Kaaba. So as Muslims, we prayed historically towards that direction before it changed to Mecca. It has a huge spiritual significance. People who lived just a few miles away couldn't visit. And it was a really strange experience to encounter. And then the guilt of being able to have access to spaces and places because I had a British passport. It was just really strange. And how about when you were in the West Bank? I'll be honest, you know, when I hear the West Bank and I hear Gaza, the names, because of everything and all the occupation and the conflict that's happened there all through as long as I can remember, I don't picture a city. I don't picture a community. I don't picture a tourist destination, for example. And I'm sure that they are, they have beautiful cities and, and, and communities as in any other country. And, and I'm well traveled, but I find it hard to picture because I picture a war zone. Um, what was your experience of going to the West Bank and how different is it to, to the perception someone like me might have? So when I say we went there as tourists, we went there mm. because of the significance and the sites that are there. So in the West Bank, there's we believe that the Prophet Ibrahim or Abraham is buried there. And I think within the Jewish culture, I think they also believe that too. So we were going for a, a religious, spiritual tour and I was with a group. So it wasn't like a, a holiday tourist yeah. destination where you go to enjoy yourself. It had a, a religious and spiritual significance. So we did go through checkpoints. And when I say we, I was there with my family, my dad, that we had relatives. We went with a group of about 40 to 50 people. So it wasn't a, a, a tourist destination, but what you did see was something that's so spiritually significant because I am a Muslim woman. We went to visit the site of where Abraham is buried. And even within the mosque itself, there was a partition, there was a gate, a side for Jewish people and a side for, side for Muslim people. And it, like I said, it was really strange. That's all I can say, because yeah. all the discrepancy, the segregation, and then there was the privilege. So put them in the mix. It's emotions and thoughts that are very difficult to process, because it's not my reality. I had the privilege of flying back home and living in a free free country and being able to have my rights to safety and security. So, um, yeah, I hope that that clarifies it, Andy. Yeah, thank you. And, and Will, uh, tell us a little bit about day to day life in Israel, and then your experience as a Jewish man going into Palestinian territory. The first time I went to Israel was, I think, nineteen eighty two, when I think I had. My 81, I had two children, very young. They're all in the 40s now. And I remember, and obviously it's different from Sabir. First of all, it's 40 years ago. I remember going into the West Bank. I presume it was called the West Bank. We went to Bethlehem. We went to Nazareth. And we went to see the sites. We did go as tourists, of course. But then about 10 or 15 years later, we, when I say we strayed, we tried to get into the West Bank again. And for whatever reason, our car with my young children in, they were a bit older then, our car was being stoned. And that is a real contrast in a, probably a period of five or ten years as to what's happening. But I, I just want to pick up something that Sabir said, that she and I had a very quick discussion about it. You mentioned Abraham. Abraham is a prophet to you, is a prophet to us. We have the Ten Commandments, you have the Ten Commandments. 
We have lots of tribal customs about when children are born, when the male child is born, we have circumcision. You have circumcision. When people die, we bury the dead within 24 hours. When they get married, there are certain customs that seem to be very, very similar. And through you, Andy, Sabir, isn't it just crazy that the Jew and the Arab are closer than any other religions? And yet here we are discussing this. And that is the biggest heartbreak of all, that there is so much similarity that uh, it's quite ironic that the war is as it is. I, I remember, I mean, we're going back a long time. I did English literature A-level and I had to write a dissertation on a particular author and I picked an author who was quite well-renowned in the 70s and 80s by the name of Leon Uris, who, Will, you probably remember. And, and Leon Uris wrote a book called Exodus that was about the, the founding of Israel and the story around that. But he followed it up with a book called The Hatch, and, and it's many, many years since I read it, so forgive the accuracy now. I didn't get a high grade for the dissertation. <laughs> but it was basically what you just said. It was about the Jew and the Arab being part of the same tribe, being brothers, and that is probably the biggest tragedy of what we see, is that there is that closeness, but politics gets in the way. So I think it's a really important point. I wholeheartedly agree with this. And I'm very, very clear, even with the, the position I take within my diversity inclusion role, is that there is more that unites us. There's more that we have in common. And I am of the opinion that it's not the religion that divides us. It's this greed. It's the greed for power, money and status. And when we look at what faith and religion teaches us, it teaches us to be honest, to be compassionate, to never kill innocent lives. It teaches us all of those key principles, whether you're a Christian, whether you're a Jew, whether you're a Muslim, whether you believe in a higher power, anybody who has that is grounded in a moral compass. And I think that's where so many people are in distress is because we have this moral compass and we're seeing people in power go completely against that. And 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 so I absolutely wholeheartedly agree with what Andy, you are saying, Andy and Will, is that we have so much more in common and unity is so much more powerful. And that's where we as individuals need to take ownership and leadership, self-leadership not take direction from the quote-unquote leaders that we have in politics and in parties, but we have a moral compass and we can step into self-leadership and connect and unite on those areas because essentially that's what's going to give us light and hope and move us forward. If you're in a leadership position and would like to review your own professional relationship strategy, you may be interested in booking a 15-minute call with Andy. Please visit andylapata.com forward slash discovery to find out more. I, I think that's beautifully put. And I'm so tempted at some of the things you say to steer us into the political debate. And I'm resisting the temptation, but I think we're all of the same mind on Let that. Let me pull you out of that mess. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> but what I'm going to say to you is most times I go to Israel, I go to the old city of Jerusalem. And Sabir, you've been? Yes, I have. Have you been, Andy? Yes, I have. You walk down there, the Jew, the Arab, the Christian, they just get on with it, or they appear to just get on with it. 
And again, that takes us back to what we've just said. People are people. They're tradespeople. They send their kids to school. And that's all I can say. When my That's the highlight of me going to Israel is to go into Jerusalem. Okay, I sit on the beach in Tel Aviv, which is very nice. But going round the historical sites, and you've then got the big argument about the Temple Mount, or what do you call it, Sabir? Masjid al-Aqsa. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? Again, it's on the same spot. Muhammad, Abraham. Again, there's more in common than there isn't. So... When you understand that, we've got these so many commonalities and then there's this huge division. Now, when I I introduced this conversation, I said, let's look at this from a perspective of a British Jew and a British Muslim having a conversation about the impact, not in the heat of it, but from that slight distance, even though you've both obviously got got personal connections there to, to both the land and to people on the land. How important do you think it is surrounding yourself with a mixture of people? And, and this is something that I talk about a lot on the podcast, and in my books, and in my writing generally. Do you think is a difference? I, I believe in both your cases, Sabir, you have Jewish friends, you have Christian friends, you have people from across faiths and will. I would be amazed if you were any different. And you don't just confine yourself to people like you from the same background, the same faith. How much of a problem do you think it is where people do just surround themselves with people who who echo the same ideas? And what can we do in our communities to bridge that divide and create some more cross-community cross conversations? Um, as you know, Andy, I've moved from, Lon from Manchester to London. And uh, perhaps if there's a lot of people from America listening to this, they probably don't know this, but it is rumoured that people in Manchester are far more friendly than the people in London. <laughs> so for, mo for the moment, forgetting the Jew and the Muslim, let's just for the moment talk about North versus South. And interestingly enough, nearly all our friends are from the North. Now that we're down here, my social life revolves around people from Leeds, Sabir, from people from Manchester, from the Midlands. We have very few friends in our social network who are from London. And there's a reason for that, because people in London of my age, remember, I'm a lot older than you two guys. My contemporaries here in London have lived here for 50, 60, 70 years. They don't need to increase their network of people. It's nothing to do with the religion. I mean, I have some non-Jewish Manchester people who are down here. So at the end of it, I think... I mean, I've just created a little group called Manchester Mates. It's a load of men only where we go out walking, where we reminisce about the, the old country, Manchester, because people like people who are like them. But you know what? If, if somebody from Manchester came down here and his, his name was Mr. Patel, he'd be more than welcome to join our group. Because people like people that are like them. And I don't care what the religion is. It's of no significance to me. I was an employer for 40 years. They came for interview, never asked about religion, was never bothered about colour. And I've got the records to show that. 
So I, uh, I'd like to hope I have no prejudice, but who knows? Uh, other, other than against people from London. And Charlton, <laughs> Charlton Athletic supporters. So, Sabia, how about um, for you, when we talked on Wednesday, you talked about having Jewish friends and, and, and friends of other faiths. How important is that to you? And do you see that as influencing how you see the situation now? And do you see other people who may be taking a different approach? I think when we are surrounded by people who have the same views as us, we're in an echo chamber and everyone's just saying the same stuff and you're listening to the same stuff. And so it's really important to have conversations and I'm going to move away from the the specific situation that's taking place in Palestine and Israel. I'm talking just generally in order to diversify and see different perspectives is very, very important because when you regard somebody as the in crowd and then there's the out crowd, there's never a space for connection and understanding. So I, I think it's really, really important to have a diverse range of thoughts and views. And so within my circle, close circle, I have colleagues and friends who are of a diverse background. When I say diverse, Muslims, Christians, Jews, I've got people who are of no faith. The key thing, as Will said, is what actually connects people is values. When you stand by the same values, you get on with people because that the other labels come secondary or even are not even part of the conversation. And so when you stand by those values, automatically you you align with each other. And so for, for that very reason, I do have a diverse group of friends. And what's very apparent is that everybody, just as Will has said, the loss of innocent civilian lives is bringing it back to what's going on now. Is It's very difficult for everybody to process. So many times I've had a conversation with people over this last week, week and a half, two weeks. They're struggling. They're struggling. And they're not Muslim. They're not Jewish. They're finding it so difficult processing what's happening. So I think it's very important to have a diverse group of friends, to have a dialogue, but then it goes back to those values, which I, as a coach, as a speaker, I always go back to is that your values are your moral compass. You're your, they're your guiding star. And that's what we have to go back to. I'm well, going to be controversial here, but I'm going to say this. Do non-Jews and non-Muslims really care what's going on? I and think so. Yes, I do. Absolutely. And the reason why I say that is I'm going to go to the humanitarian part. You don't have to be belonging to a faith or a religion to feel sad at the loss of an innocent person, a child. If you saw somebody injured on the side of the road, I don't think you'll be asking them if they're Muslim or Jewish. If we have humanity within us, we will be caring. And so I've had conversations with people who don't belong to your faith or my faith. They don't actually affiliate themselves to any faith and they're struggling. And there are many people that are also speaking up and I'm in the diversity and inclusion space. And so when people are speaking up for black lives and people are speaking up about colonization and people are speaking about ethnic cleansing and people are using these terms, why is it that what we're witnessing is any different? It's a real life situation in front of us. And so I do definitely think that people do care. People are speaking up. Well, let me take you back and you probably weren't born, Sabir, or maybe even you weren't, Andy. There was the troubles in Northern Ireland, the Catholics, 
versus the Protestants. So, Beard, do you remember that, or are you too? Young? No, but I've I've heard about it and You've read about, about it. it. As a Jew, we watch the news. We watch them bombing each other. We watch them shooting again because we didn't have instant news. We watched it two days later, but we watched it as an outsider. And we thought, oh, my goodness, why don't they get together and sort it out? It took them 40 years to sort it out. But So I'm wondering what percentage of the non-Jewish, non-Muslim community are really interested. You're right, of course. There'll be millions who think who are hum, humanitarians who hate what's going on. But I believe there's an awful lot, again, millions, who perhaps watch the news and just shrug. So, because it's nothing to do with them, they probably think. I'm, I'm very flattered, Will, that you think I might be too young to remember the troubles, first of all. You've actually brought us on to the next thing I wanted to ask you about actually, as well, because I've seen a lot of people complaining, predominantly Jewish friends, but it doesn't mean that Muslim friends aren't complaining the same thing. Um, but I've seen Jewish friends complaining that people who aren't Jewish aren't asking how they are. And I'm sure that there are Muslim people who, who feel the same as well. What advice would you give to people who aren't Jewish or aren't Muslim or even who want to reach out across the divide about how they should show more care, more empathy, what they should do to reach out to people? Should they? Is it their battle? Is it their fight? And And... What steps would you expect to see from them or want to see from them? That's an easy one for me. Andy, as you know, for the last 20-odd years in your introduction, I show people how to build relationships through networking. The thought of initiating a conversation about what's going on, I would never do it. If they asked me, fine, I would have a conversation. But personally, I would never ever start a conversation about what's going on. I'm delighted to say I've had quite a few messages and phone calls of sympathy and understanding or asking me what's going on. But no, I would never, ever ask them, oh, are you feeling sorry for me? No, never do. So, so you wouldn't initiate it with them as a Jewish man to someone who's not Jewish, but what would you expect them to do with you, so you've said that they've that you've had some non-Jewish friends reach out to you. Is that what you expect? Are you upset when people don't ask how you are? I don't think about it. I really don't think about it because if I'm talking to some, if I'm talking to my Jewish friends, we will discuss it because, like Sabir and her community, the black cloud is there every day, and the black cloud is there for the Jew and the community, but. Until a non, if an, unless a non-Jew shows any interest, I don't see any point whatsoever in asking him or her, and what do you think? Because by asking them, all of a sudden, we might start arguing. Well, you know, I think side A are the right side and side B are the wrong side. Why start to create an unnecessary conflict if they're not interested? I feel very strongly about that. Yeah. And Sabia? I have a very different opinion. And my opinion is that you can't ignore what's going on. 
because whether people speak about it or not, pretending as though nothing is going on is like ignoring something that is so significant and brushing it under the carpet. And we all know that in our networks, again, I'm not speaking about when I speak, I'm not speaking about the Muslim community or just the Jewish community, because I actually think there are people who are of none of these faiths who are also seeing the catastrophe and the genocide that's taking place and are actually affected. And like I said, over the last few weeks, I've had conversations with people who've not even belonged to either faiths who are speaking and saying, look, we're in this environment and people are pretending as though everything's normal. And there's hundreds and thousands of people who are dying, who are being slaughtered, and we're pretending as though life is fine and okay. The least that people should do is acknowledge. So I come from a space of, we should acknowledge that what is going on is unjust, it's a catastrophe, it's wrong. And I also am of the thought that we don't have to have the answers because yes, it goes into that very difficult territory. There are people who are listening to this podcast who would be, and many people are afraid to admit that they're struggling to sleep, they're struggling to concentrate, they're struggling to function in their daily lives at work because there is a human impact of this on our lives, even though we're thousands of miles away. So I encourage people to at least, in the very least, acknowledge what's going on. It's okay. You don't have to have the answers. You don't have to belong to either of the communities. You don't even need to say anything about whose side you're on, but you're acknowledging something. And from a human point of view, if someone is struggling, then you've got to create those spaces to get that support. We're fortunate that here in the UK, we have companies and organisations that invest in mental health, that have services, mentoring, coaching, counselling. And it's really important to bear in mind that although we're not in those places, we're not on the ground, we, in our own way, are seeing trauma and processing it but yet we've got to process it in a way whilst we're trying to function in everyday life and so how can we ignore that so for me I definitely encourage that at least in the very least acknowledge it if any of your colleagues are struggling you don't need to side with anybody because I know there has been a difference in people saying you know, wearing flags, the Palestinian flags, the Palestinian cause, and then, you know, the, the, the Israeli cause. We're humans, we're struggling. And when you're struggling, what are the services that here in the UK we can tap into to be able to process things so then we can do our jobs properly, we can perform effectively, we can manage that emotional baggage that we're managing. Uh, back to what I just said, Sabia. I am not ignoring it. All I'm saying to you is, if somebody doesn't bring up the subject, I will not bring up the subject. But if they do, then what you've just said, I can understand. I have a very good friend, Avril. Avril, we know, is struggling like crazy. She's due to go on a very expensive cruise in a week or so. She's like that. Should I go? Shouldn't I go? She has a daughter out there in Tel Aviv. And the, the, what you've just described about people worrying and needing help. And this is somebody who's very sophisticated. She's a doctor. She's a retired doctor of 40 years. Yes, you're right. 
But if people, non-Jewish people, don't mention it, I'm going to just say this finally, I will not, I can't see any benefit in bringing up the topic. I'll think, why haven't you asked me? But I won't create the dialogue by mentioning it. But that was more my question is, do you feel that they should be asking you? Irrespective of whether you raise it or not, do you feel they should be asking you? They should be checking in on you? Life's all about priority, Andy. And if they'd rather talk about Manchester United having a bad season than talk about what's going on in the war, then in, in, in the Middle East, then that's their choice. I'll just add two things on this, if I may. And one of them is it never occurred to me to check in with my black friends how they were feeling during all of the Black Lives Matter protests and the George Floyd killings and so forth until I heard someone talk about the importance of checking in with them. And then I talked to a good friend of mine, David McQueen. I know you know David and Sabia's nodding her head, knows David as well. And I sat and I asked him about his experiences and I started having more conversations like that. I needed to be prompted though. And I think there were two things that held me back. One is... I hate the cliche that often gets laughed at of I don't see colour, but because it, it is laughable, we all see our differences. But I try not to treat people based on, you know, that, that, that skin deep difference. And so I think I've conditioned myself not to think about them and their experiences in that way. And I feel that white man's guilt, if you like, about asking the question. You almost feel racist by asking what it's like. And I had to get over that, and it forced me to. And I guess because of the distance between being in the UK and being in the US, I didn't make, make the connection. But it really opened up some important conversations for me. But I needed to be prompted to do it, is my point. And, and the second is that I have reached out to some friends particularly who I know live in the region, to check in on them. And sometimes you just get, um, we're okay, back. And in Just Ask, Ivan Meisner told me about semantic differential questioning. When you ask someone, how are you? And they just say, I'm okay. You then build with a deeper question. And what I found is if I've said, you know, how are you impacted? Oh, we're safe, we're fine. How close are you to the bombing? Are you being affected by any rockets being fired? You know, have are your family in any danger areas? Those are the questions that are really drawing out the, the real responses. So if you are checking in with people, remember that semantic differential questioning and go deeper would be my advice on that. Sabia, uh, this is the last question from me, and then I'm going to sort of open it up to both of you in case there's anything you feel we haven't talked about that we should. Uh, this is the Connected Leadership Podcast, and, and I did say at the beginning that it is a slightly different uh, episode this week. Um, but ultimately, I do want everything that we talk about to help our listeners as leaders understand the power of of different of stronger connections and forge those stronger connections. We've talked about how you engage with your friends and family, or, or particularly friends who may not be Jewish, who may be Jewish or Muslim and you're not. But what about as a leader? You know, you touched on it, Sabir, in your last answer about the work scenario. But if you're a leader and you've got Jewish or Muslim members of your team, uh, I'm pretty much taking from your answer that you shouldn't be burying your head in the sand and you should be addressing it. What advice would you give to those leaders about how they can address it in an empathetic, compassionate way um, that's going to cr create the right conversation and not an uncomfortable moment? 
a lot of my work is around values. And so I can't say every leader should behave in this way. But the biggest advice I would give is to anybody who's here, who's listening to the audience is that check in with your values, what's important to you, because that will determine how you behave and act during this time. For those leaders who do stand up for justice, who do stand up for equality, their stance will be very different to those who are driven by money and status and career, because many of those will not have these conversations and will not acknowledge what's going on and will just pretend as though everything's okay for the greater purpose of what they're driven by. So check in with your values. And then I would say as leaders, regardless of what your stance is, is to acknowledge what's going on. And I would say that encourage your colleagues who are struggling to tap into those services where they do get access to process what's going on for them, because many people will be afraid to speak up because of the repercussions. And as leaders, as people who are in positions of leadership, we should also know what's going on with the people that are working with us. So whether they are being vocal about it or not, but create those spaces so that people can access those services, even if they don't actually vocalize it, because we're all processing it in different ways. We're all affected in different ways. And at the end of the day, we want our performance to continue to take place within our businesses and organizations. So how can we ensure that that is taking place? So they're the few recommendations and thoughts I have on on, on that. Thank you. And and Will, what would you add to that? If I was an employer, which I was for about 40-odd years, I would do exactly what Sabir did. I would reach out to them and ask them how they're feeling and what can I do. So I would be proactive. But in my social life, sorry for repeating it for the third time, if it's a non-Jewish person or even a Jewish person who I didn't know was Jewish never mentioned it to me, I don't see a benefit in discussing it with them. Yeah, this was more about for leaders of teams, you know, how, how they would yeah, approach it. And I think that's a, yeah. Well, can, can I share just, this is, this is quite important. I want to share with you. I am chairman of a charity and we look after people with disabilities. My CEO phoned me this week, a Jewish charity looking after people in Manchester. It's a Manchester charity. And he phoned to say to me, and again, Sabir, this is about leadership and support. We went round, we called them members, we people we look after. We don't call them patients, we call them members. And he phoned to tell me as the CEO that he'd been to see every one of them if they needed any support, which is probably something that you would do, Sabir, if you were in that position. Again, doing it the right way for the right reasons. So, yes. But uh, show, I don't show, have staff anymore. So. No. Show, showing, showing that your door is open without forcing people into the conversation, you know, but people have to trust that they can walk through that door. I, I talked to a senior leader during the week who said to me he has his calendar open for anyone on the team to book time with him at, at certain points in the week. No one ever uses it. And he couldn't understand this till he realized it's traditionally a hierarchical organization. It's a bank. And they don't feel that they can 
do that, even though he said. So that, there's building that. You have to build the platform of trust over time first so that when something like this happens, people know that they can come to you and be open uh, with you. I'm going to mention, when, when we conclude, a couple of previous episodes of the podcast that are relevant to this, and there's one in particular that, that I'll mention that's worth checking back on a leader who did exactly this around a, a different scenario. So our time is coming to a close, but I want to make sure, I don't normally ask this question, but I think it's important this week that we don't leave anything unsaid that you feel is important to say. So, Will, I'll come to you first. Is there anything we haven't covered that you feel that you want to share? No, but on a slightly, slight light-hearted note, I went for coffee today with somebody you and I know very well, a fellow called Mark Lee, yeah, a Jewish fellow, and he sat down. And the first thing he said is, how are things? Have you got any family in Israel? What's happening? All the questions we've been asking. And I answered him and answered and answered him. And then the coffee came and he turned around to me and he said, aren't you going to ask me about me? (laughs) I said, "Um, yeah, sorry, Mark, I should do. He said, well, you can ask me, but I've got no connect. I've got no family or friends in Israel, so it doesn't matter anyway. (laughs) <laughs> well there you go well, I, should you've, have, I should have asked him and he sent me a happy birthday note earlier and you just made me feel guilty and then you took the guilt away because I just thanked him for the note and, and Sabir anything that we haven't covered that, that you feel that you want to, to, to say I think we're in a time in the world where we really have to become more clearer on what matters to us the most as Will spoke about priorities and Unfortunately, we're not seeing good leadership practice um, in the spaces of power. But what I would like the participants and the people who are listening is that we can never take away from the importance that we have, the role that we have as individuals to play in the world. So from this space of self-leadership is that engage your critical thinking, stand for what you would be proud to stand up for, and that you would be proud that your grandchildren and your children would say, my family members stood up for this. And that comes back, I always go back to values. That always goes back to values. Whether you're a leader, whether you're a person in the community, each and every one of us must never feel like we are helpless because we're not. We have a voice and we're fortunate that we can share in our own relative circles of influence whether that's your family whether that's your community whether that's a a global stage but self-leadership should never be diminished even if the leadership that we're seeing and I say that quote unquote is going against our values and morals we have our own space and if the more we step into that and the more we align to that the more empowered we are and the more change we can create and I think that's the direction that we're headed in. Thank you so, so much. I have to say to both of you that I am delighted that you joined me on this podcast. I'm delighted we did this. You know, I said at the beginning it was a big call, whether we did or not. And it's just a shame it's brought this scenario to bring your voices to the Connected Leadership podcast, because I think you've both brought so much to the conversation not just about what you're going through and what other people are going through in this particular situation, but and this is what I want from any Connected Leadership podcast conversation, but just 
in terms of how we approach relationships generally and how they help us be better leaders. So thank you so much for, for joining me and for being completely open and vulnerable with us on the Connected Leadership Podcast. Thank Thanks, you, Andy. Andy. Thanks, Andy. So as, as I said, thank you so much to both Sabia and to Will for joining me. And I am glad that we did cover that. Sabia talked a lot about the importance of values and she talked about if you're a leader with the right values, then you want to be there, you want to contribute and help people. And I was questioning whether this was the right podcast episode for this series, but I think in my gut, I knew it was. And I'd like to think that my values drove that. And because I have a platform, however big or small that platform might be, perhaps on the smaller scale, I needed to use it in some way to contribute positively to the to the debate. And I hope that I've done that. I, I mentioned that there were a couple of podcast interviews that I wanted to point you to. One was only a few weeks ago on the 11th of September, Noah Baum. And Noah wrote a phenomenal book called A Land Twice Promised, an Israeli Jew who was brought up seeing Palestinians as the other and the enemy. And then started having her mind changed, her her perception changed when she went to university. She then ended up moving to America where she met a a Palestinian woman from East Jerusalem just a couple of miles away from where she'd been brought up and saw the other perspective. And, And I nearly published that again this week, but I decided to go with this approach. But go and check the interview with Noah from the 11th of September because it's really powerful. And and reach out to Noah because she messaged me today and she's going through a really tough time at the moment with this. I I hope she wouldn't mind me saying that. She's publicly posted about it as well. And and I think it goes without saying that it would be very tough for an, an Israeli woman from Jerusalem at this time. And then the other isn't actually about this topic. I did touch on it a few minutes ago. I interviewed Elliot Ferguson on the 3rd of October last year, 2022. Elliot is the CEO and president of the Washington Tourism Bureau. And he talked to me about being a black leader during the George Floyd riots and everything that happened around then. And I think there's a lot to learn from Elliot's approach with his staff during that crisis that leaders can take during this one. So that was the 3rd of October, 2022 with Elliot Ferguson. The quickest way to find them is just Google my name and Noah Baum or my name and Elliot Ferguson. We'll put the links in the show notes as well. That'll be even quicker. Uh, so thank you very much. I, I, I started out by saying I wanted to hit the right note in what was a very difficult scenario. I hope that we did. And I hope that you found this helpful, useful, and, and, and if you needed it, supportive as well. And join us again next week for another episode of the Connected Leadership Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Connected Leadership Podcast. If you found this valuable, please subscribe, tell your colleagues and friends, share on social media, and post a review on the podcast channel you use to listen to it. And of course, join us again soon for another interesting interview and great Connected Leadership tips.